everybody, it's Martin Kessler. Welcome to another episode of 20 Minute Fitness, the show that covers science and technology in and around fitness and health in just a few minutes. Let's start off with a line of wisdom for this episode, and that is every fighter has got to be dedicated, learn how to sacrifice, know what the devotion is all about, make sure you're paying attention, and study your art. Set by none other than the marvelous Marvin Hagler, one of the greatest boxers of all time and who sadly passed away earlier two weeks ago. Moving on, today's particular episode is going to be of great interest to nutrition geeks, biohackers, and anyone who's really interested in living long and healthy really. Quite frankly, you should be interested in that stuff. My guest is none other than Rob Wolf. Rob is a former research biochemist that really has a multifaceted background from having been one of the earliest practitioners of CrossFit and advocates of the paleo diet. He's also a quite prolific author, really, who's written The Paleo Solution, Wired to Eat, and The Sacred Cow. And you may have heard of his own podcast, The Healthy Rebellion Radio. I watched some of his talks on metabolic health ancestral diets and intermittent fasting on YouTube. In our discussion, you will see that Rob doesn't get dogmatic when it comes to choosing paleo, keto, or how many carbs to consume even. Because at the end of the day, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Every individual has their own metabolic flexibility, genetic makeup, and gut microbiome composition, and of course, varying performance needs. Anyways, I really hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did and that you can take away some of Rob's unique perspectives and incorporate them into your own lifestyle. Last but not least, a quick shout out to our sponsor, 20 Minute Fitness is brought to you by ShapeScale, the 3D body scanning scale that measures and visualizes your body composition in photorealistic 3D. Currently in beta testing in San Francisco and soon available to everyone. More on ShapeScale.com. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Huge honor to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on. I know you, you have a really busy schedule, but it's, it's really great to have you on the show today. Um, could you start off by introducing yourself first, though, for the listeners that don't know about you? Yeah, I try to keep it brief. Uh, by training, I'm a biochemist, uh, mainly did research in cancer and autoimmunity spheres. I uh, had a really significant health crisis back in 1998 when I was looking at beginning medical school or a PhD program. And kind of the long, hopefully short, but somewhat long story. I, I figured out that I had ulcerative colitis and kind of a interrelated host of both GI and autoimmune issues. And through some pretty extensive digging, uh, came up with this idea of uh, ancestral or paleolithic type diet and was so sick at that time. I'm about 170 pounds now at my low ebb due to malabsorption from the ulcerative colitis. I was about 125, 130 pounds. So really, oh, really rough wow. shape. Yeah. And being desperate and knowing that that the conventional treatments for, for these conditions are, are not all that, that effective. Uh, tried this uh, low-carb, ketogenic, uh, you know, ancestral-type diet. And for me, it was just a lifesaver. Like, it literally uh, saved my life. And it was such a profound impact on me. It really made me question if I wanted to go into standard clinical medicine. And although you can kind of steward things in a different direction, once you're, you're through medical school, you spend a remarkable amount of time learning about pathology and disease and, and whatnot in a way that I, I knew I just wasn't going to tackle. And so interestingly, around that, that time, I also discovered this kind of wacky workout online called CrossFit. And this was back around 2000, 2001. And my good friend, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started following these workouts in his garage. And within about three months, we had about 15 people that we were training in his garage. And we reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit, and asked, 
asked if we could open a gym and call it CrossFit. And they said, go for it. <laughs> and that ended up being the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. And then I, after that, not too long, uh, moved back down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad and opened up what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym. So if people like CrossFit, that's usually kind of a cool story. If they hate CrossFit, then um, I usually lose uh, several credibility points sharing that that little bit of back background. But uh, being in and around that community for you know, gosh, almost 20 years now, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been fascinating because we've had the ability to work with so many people under so many different circumstances, kind of the elite athletic performance scene, people in police, military and fire. But I've got to be honest, my main passion has always been that a person kind of like me, someone that had some really complex health issues that they had, they had exhausted what standard of care medicine could provide them. And uh, that's really the area that I've focused the most over, you know, the bulk of my career trying to uncover the different, you know, nuanced paths to improved health. And I, I think we're going to talk a fair amount about uh, metabolic flexibility today. And that was a, a hard won lesson for myself, both learning about where the, the edges of that apply to myself, which I'm not particularly metabolically flexible. I've, I've improved that over time, but making some assumptions early on, kind of that classic Dunning-Kruger thing, you know, it's like, well, this thing worked really well for me. So clearly it'll work really well for everybody else. And so it's been an interesting experience understanding where and when this ancestral template kind of uh, uh, works very well for folks and where we need some latitude and some flexibility to make it work for, for the folks for whom they're not the center of the bullseye in, in that situation. Right. Yeah, let, let's dive a bit deeper into metabolic health. Um, in, in general, I would say the U.S. is definitely facing a metabolic health epidemic. It's become so so tough that you know diabetes is on the rise, diabetes type 2, and obesity is on the rise. And a lot of it can be led back to metabolic flexibility or the lack of it. Maybe you can mm -hmm. talk a bit more about the concept, actually, what metabolic flexibility actually means and why it is important. Yeah, being metabolically flexible in, in kind of like a textbook definition really speaks to the ability to use a variety of different fuel sources, mainly really carbohydrate and fat, though, although by extension ketone, it very seamlessly with, with little drama, little difficulty, really not a big change in, in performance or perception. My wife is an example of somebody who's very metabolically flexible. She can go keto, she goes in, she goes out, no headache, no lethargy, no problems. Um, she can eat a fair amount of carbs and doesn't suffer, you know, a really crazy blood sugar excursion. She doesn't get like blood sugar crashes unless she really, you know, if she uh, uh, goes for the extra large, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mexican meal of uh, beans and rice and tortillas and, and you know, and, right. and, and, and she can feel kind of rough from that. Like she can over do it, but she needs to really try to do that. And in researching some material for my second book, Wired to Eat, we did some side-by-side -side comparisons where I would eat, say, 50 grams of carbohydrate from white rice. She would eat the same amount. She's a good 30 or 40 pounds lighter than I am, but she would still, her blood sugar would, over a two-hour period of time, never really get above about 115, 120, you know, throughout the course of that whole experience, whereas mine would top off around 190, 195. I would then suffer a really oh, catastrophic wow. crash, blurred vision, cognitive problems. I mean, I was, I was kind of a disaster on that. And so this was, and it, you know, it was cool in that it gave a little bit more of a concrete explanation for what I'd seen clinically, which is that this person seems to run great on carbs. This person doesn't. And, you know, here's, here's kind of like an actual, yeah 
And, and just to be clear, you, you're not diabetic, nor are you pre-diabetic. No, but I think if I ate carbs pretty consistently, I would get there rather rather rapidly. Yeah, or or at a minimum, I would suffer a lot of deleterious health effects, like like you know, uh, uh, vision problems and and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how do you explain, you know, like metabolic inflexibility? Like how does it occur or is it just something that some people have and some don't? I'm not entirely sure. I think that there's multiple factors that are at play here. For sure, genetics is is a piece of this. People who have more of the amylase gene, more, more frequency of the amylase gene seem to do better with carbohydrates. They seem to both digest them better, but they also have a more favorable insulin response. It seems to keep the, the insulin or, or the blood glucose levels within tighter parameters. And here's an interesting thing that I, I uh, for me, it was kind of this, this uh, pretty deep insight. I don't know if it is for other people, but an individual like myself to have good blood glucose levels, I have to eat reasonably low carb, like probably below 50 grams of total carbs a day, sometimes more or like if I'm really active or, or whatnot. But it, in that situation, I have a pretty consistent blood glucose response throughout the day. People who are very metabolically flexible or very insulin sensitive. They look like I look like eating significant amounts of carbs. And that's really the big difference there. And the people who eat significant amounts of carbs and don't suffer the blood sugar crashes, which then lead into the over, over consumption of food, uh, you know, writ large, I think is where we, we kind of see the, the distinction between folks. Uh, 20 years ago, I was definitely a bit in the insulin hypothesis camp. I think over the, over the course of time, I've, I've come to the, the conclusion that yeah, chronically elevated insulin levels are definitely a problem, but insulin Insulin in and of itself is not the primary driver of, of uh, say, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance and whatnot. You know, uh, uh, you take kind of a classic Gary Tobbs approach. Um, I don't buy into that, but at the same time, I'm not fully on board with, say, like the it fits your macros crowd that will just say, so long as food composition doesn't really matter, you just need to keep control of your portions. In a free living world, free living population, how you keep control of portions is really important. Not that many many people have the discipline or the neuroses to do basically like a, a figure competitor's lifestyle like that. That's a big lift for a lot of folks. And so finding a way that people can spontaneously match caloric intake and output, I think is kind of where the, the ticket is. And that's where people kind of find, um, their, their metabolic flexibility optimum. But like you, had, you asked a really good question. I did a poor job of answering it. Uh, you know, what is metabolic flexibility? What goes into uh, defining it? Genetics are definitely a big piece. The gut microbiome appears to be a big piece. The caveat to that is we know it's important. I don't think very many people have any idea what to do to improve that. Like probiotics work for some yeah. people, prebiotic fiber work for others. And for some people, all of those are an absolute disaster and do nothing. So I think there's a lot of... Uh, charlatanism that goes around the, the gut microbiome. We know absolutely that it's important, but I think the only thing that we can really hang our hat on is if we do something and it has a clinical outcome of improving gut health and improving metabolic flexibility, that's great. But we're not really at a great predictive place with that. Like I, I think that there's a lot of goofiness that happens on the testing and whatnot. There are some lesser known or considered things like iron overload, particularly in, in men or postmenopausal women, Excess iron, you know, accumulation in the body is a pro-oxidant and that pro-oxidative status can increase inflammation and that increased inflammatory state uh, degrades insulin sensitivity and by extension, the, the uh, you know, metabolic flexibility. So there's some big picture 
things that we know feed into metabolic flexibility. And again, I, I think that we have varying degrees of control over those different levers. Yeah, and no, it's kind of an interesting topic, actually, yeah. when you look at the, the microbiome. I mean, studies have shown that di diabetics or obese people often lack certain bacterial cultures, microbiota, mm -hmm. like Akkermansia municipila, and, and that can have a, a huge impact, actually, on your ability to, to metabolize carbohydrates. Now, how do we reintroduce that and whether, you know, the fact you know, where, where's really the causality? Like, why do they lack them? You know, those microbiota, has it been always the case? Or has it been because of certain lifestyle behavior? And once the damage is done, how easy is it really to change the makeup of your microbiome? That's really, like you said, it's there's a lot of charlatanism and a lot of unknown stuff, like how we can really influence it. Like you said, some people, you know, they, they find probiotics work. Some people use, you know, like a lot of fibers in their diet, and that really helps to build up certain cultures. But it's it's not really a, a one-size-fits-all approach right now, which makes it so hard. It really is. And, and you know, uh, even I would put one additional wrinkle in there, which is that you may be doing something and it may be working and then something will change. And then whatever it is that you're doing isn't working anymore. And we saw this in working with Naval Special Warfare. These SEALs would deploy. They had great endocrine profiles. They were super metabolically flexible. They would do a deployment. Their line of work is just so stressful, like uh, low-grade traumatic brain injuries from parachute deployments, riding boats over choppy water, firing w uh, uh, weapons, you know, basically shift work, being awake all night, sleeping during the day, using Ambien to sleep, using uh, stimulants to wake up and these guys would come back an absolute metabolic wreck. And so the individual would, would be pretty metabolically flexible pre-deployment an absolute metabolic wreck post-deployment and, and uh, oftentimes limited ability to really change what we could do to improve things. And oftentimes what, what the, the main lever left to us, we would try to improve sleep, try to improve endocrine function and whatnot, but really just uh, controlling that, that glycemic load ended up being like the most effective thing that we had going on. Right. And when it comes to nutrition, like it's still like a thing like optimal nutrition. I mean, you, you often go back to the ancestral way of living. You're really big on paleo and obviously paleo does come with, you know, low carbohydrate component in its diet. Is that the way it was always in, in the past? And, and that's why, you know, metabolic flexibility was less of an issue than it is today. Or how do you explain that? Yeah, I think, I mean, optimum, there's usually an optimum for each person. And then that will be a little bit dependent, though, on what the goals are. You know, if, if you're kind of very performance oriented, then optimum nutrition may actually be a little bit antagonistic towards longevity. Uh, James Fitzgerald, the guy who won the very first CrossFit Games, very, very smart guy. He made the case that due to the, the volume of glycolytic demands within CrossFit, you had to consume a carbohydrate level that for anybody was probably antagonistic towards longevity over the, the legitimate long haul. Like maybe you could have a window of time where you were really competitive, but if you were going to run that hot of a motor that often, like there were, there were just going to be some consequences to it. So I do think that we can zero in on optimum nutrition from kind of the protein leverage hypothesis. Mm -hmm. This is an idea that all organisms tend to eat to a protein minimum. And this is true of whether we're talking about grazing animals or omnivores or carnivores. And it's because the, the more protein centric foods also tend to have other nutrition that comes along for the ride. So like uh, grazing animals will really lean heavily towards 
clover over grass because the clover tends to be more nutrient dense. It tends to have more protein and, and by extension, other nutrition with it. And so if we get a little bit protein centric and make sure that we're ticking the boxes there, which is I like somewhere around a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass on up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight. Like that seems to be a pretty good spectrum for folks to exist in and then use that as your, your base. And then from there, do some tinkering with, do you run better a little higher carb? Do you run better a little lower carb? And then fill in appropriate from there, but really kind of making things kind of protein centric. And then by extension from that, figuring out, uh, trying to get as much whole food nutrition as you can, but catering to your, your kind of, you know, metabolic specificity or the, the demands of your sport or what have you. And then how do you like, what level of protein do you see as reasonable? Like, are you more subscribing to, well, Ted Naiman's PE diet or are you more like in the keto camp? Well, so uh, that, that gram of protein per pound of lean body mass on up to a gram of protein per uh, body weight, which is definitely more in that Ted Naiman um, sphere. You know, the interesting side note with that, though, the classic Atkins recommendations were right in that ballpark. Uh, the Bernstein diabetes solution, which is tailored towards type one diabetes, is right in that that uh, ballpark. I think the unfortunate thing is that the ketosis as a state can be arrived at in a lot of different ways. And, and you know, right. there, there seems to be at least some some benefits, at least for some people being at least transiently there. But then unfortunately, because we had a medically supervised ketogenic diet, this thing kind of became the, the default gold standard of how you enter that process. And I, I think for most people, it's protein deficient. It ends up being nutrient deficient uh, uh, over the long haul. Interestingly, I think people have a tendency to overeat and gain weight on it over the long haul, which is supposed to be, you know, back to that insulin hypothesis, supposed to be uh, impossible to do. So I'm definitely more in that Ted Naiman PE camp for sure. Yeah, because fats tend to be pretty high in calories. And yeah. well, there's still a the whole debate what is more satisfying, you know, satiating. Uh, is it protein or is it fat, right? I mean, there's still Joe yeah. in that. And, and you know, on that satiety story, um, there is kind of an S curve with, with protein. So satiety goes up with protein up to a point and then it will flatline. And this it, it is likely due to the, the need at, at some point, nobody's super sure what the upper limit of, of protein as part of the human diet it can be. Is it 30%? Is it 40%? The, some of these Northern latitude populations like the Inuit, maybe 40 to 45%. They may have some polymorphisms that allow them to consume a higher percentage of protein as a, a total percent of calories. But there is kind of a reality that at some point over the long haul, humans do need either fat or carbohydrate to act as a cofactor in protein metabolism. And so there is kind of a, you, you can't indefinitely do an 80% protein diet as, as an example. Right. If an individual has a, a significant amount of body fat to lose, then you can do that. And that effectively ends up being kind of like a, a protein sparing modified fast. But once the individual gets reasonable, lean, we're going to end up with some protein toxicity issues and, and we've got to, got to modify some things, but pretty consistently I, I see folks under eating protein and we do uh, resets frequently within our healthy rebellion community. And I, I have folks that have followed me for 10 or 15 years. They've read my books. Um, they seem pretty buttoned up. And then when we really get them to weigh and measure their food and lay out what they're, they're actually doing, they are consistently under eating protein by, you know, anywhere from like 50 to 75 percent of what they should be. It's remarkable how under eating protein they typically are. And then once they fix that, 
all these other good things kind of kind of fall into place. I mean, when you look at our society, when we look at our you know supermarket shelves, it's so much easier to undereat on protein and overeat on on carbohydrates and fats than, than on protein. And, and, and that's really a problem. Yeah. Now, in your, in your first book, you also talk about the process called glucose hysteresis. Maybe you can also talk about that and how does it play a role in metabolic flexibility? Yeah, that's a, I, I was kind of excited when I, when I saw that in your, <laughs> in your perspective. It's a, it's a really thick topic. I, I have a couple of uh, longer talks that, that dig into this. One of them is uh, metabolic flexibility, the, the Rosetta Stone of the macronutrient wars. And I I think folks can probably search that and, and find like the, the full presentation on that. But hysteresis is an interesting process. If folks have a little bit of an engineering background, they may be familiar with these things called memory switches. Within electronics, there are switches, the composition and the way that they're put together, they will actually become more attuned. If a certain signal goes through them, they will become more attuned and more efficient at, at kind of switching into the state that they, you know, that uh, uh, they, they switch into. Glucose hysteresis, the theory behind it. Now, this isn't it isn't 100% buttoned up, but it, it, it makes a ton of sense to me and it, it seems to be gaining some ground. It makes the case that with really significant blood glucose excursions, it forces our epigenetic kind of profile into a very glucose-centric kind of situation because we have to dispose of, of the, the glucose and, and deal with it. it. tends to shift us into a more glycolytic metabolism, and this tends to produce remarkable amounts of reactive oxygen species. And we are also dealing with the advanced glycation in products of, of the glucose sticking to our proteins and, and kind of creating cross-linking. But the notion behind the glucose hysteresis is that over time, because of these blood sugar excursions, our epigenetics kind of shift more and more and more towards a glucose-centric metabolism. And that ends up eroding our, our ability to have metabolic flexibility. So then we become very inefficient at dealing with fat. If you overlay just general overeating in that situation, then I think we have a terrible mm. downward spiral and this uh, kind of dovetails into the lipotoxic model of, of insulin resistance where once adipocytes, uh, so someone like me, I, I, it would be very, very difficult for me to get extremely overweight because I tend to get super high blood pressure, high blood glucose. Like I would be one of these not super overweight, but dead really quick diabetics. Like I would have cardiovascular disease. I'd have super, super high blood glucose levels. Some people though, in the process of over consuming calories have this amazing capacity to keep gaining body fat but without losing insulin sensitivity. They're relatively insulin sensitive. Uh, those people also interestingly tend to be relatively low in visceral adiposity. And that seems to be one of the, the oh. main things like that, that storage of fat around the internal organ seems to somehow be particularly toxic to glucose metabolism. But this the, the combination of this hysteresis idea, this notion that you're just constantly pinging your metabolism to respond to glucose and do it in a way that is, again, like for from an ancestral health model, there are societies that consume remarkable amounts of carbohydrate. But the thing to really keep in mind is that they don't experience these really significant blood glucose excursions. And I know you wanted to talk about CGMs uh, yep. a bit. And that's where I think that we can get some insight into this story. And again, it's really important for folks to, to keep in mind. Some folks in the kind of paleo ancestral health scene 
will say, well, dude, look at the Catawba. They eat 70% carbohydrates. So eating tons of sweet potatoes should be fine. The Catawbans though, don't suffer really significant blood glucose excursions. They do once they shift into a more westernized diet, they get seed oils and bad sleep and, and processed carbohydrates and, and all the rest of this stuff. But uh, it, it's again, I think that there are kind of frequency bounds that are really important to keep in mind when we're thinking about these processes kind of feeding forward. I, I know Peter Atia recommends like a baseline of about 80 for blood glucose. And I want to say an excursion, not, a, not greater than uh, 15 or 20 points above that, mm-hmm. you know, post meal. And that's the way that, that he kind of creates his optimized nutrition for his, for his clients. The interesting thing though, is that the, from person to person that could be 30 grams of carbohydrate a day for one person or maybe 300 grams of carbohydrate a day for another person, you know, based off their metabolic flexibility and glucose disposal and whatnot. But I I do think that it's interesting looking at postprandial glucose excursions and just kind of glucose on average, like an A1C. It is an an interesting way to start kind of triangulating in on what may be uh, more appropriate for for folks based off their goals. Yeah, I'm kind of interested about that topic as well. You know, like the the postprandial elevated glucose response, those excursions and to some extent, it is something that is somewhat normal. If you have, you know, like a meal with a higher glycemic load, you're going to have some of those spikes and, you know, you have an insulin response and, you know, the curve lowers again. Now, the question is, of course, how long is that spike? You know, do you have it, you know, just for half an hour, one hour, two hours or three or four hours? And I think that's where it gets particularly dangerous. But how do you think that factors into the whole longevity and optimized nutrition debate? You know, so the main anchor that I pulled for this, and this may be complete confirmation bias, but uh, uh, Stefan Guianet had a really interesting article. I want to say it was from maybe 2009. And it, it, it pulled together, I don't know if it's all of the known studies, but a good number of the known studies looking at oral glucose tolerance test in pre-agricultural people. So it was hunter-gatherers, mm-hmm. it was pastoralists, it was some horticulturalists. And the general trend there was that even when these these relatively small people, so something to keep in mind is a larger, uh, with an oral glucose tolerance test, it's uh, usually either 75 or 100 grams of glucose that are, are consumed at a bolus. A bigger person is just naturally going to have a lower value you in blood glucose response because it's bigger. You're, you're, you have a larger sure. surface area to dilute it in. These are pretty small folks, but they still rarely had a blood glucose level above about 110 uh, nanograms per deciliter, uh, which is really remarkable. You know, you would think that the fact that they were just smaller it, to, to size match this, their, their glucose amount should have been like 50 grams really because they're so much smaller than generally than westernized populations, but they still had these remarkably good blood glucose uh, responses. And there just wasn't a really, really large blood glucose excursion there. And so again, if we dovetail back into that idea of glucose hysteresis, and if we really hammer that, that glycolytic response, you know, blood glucose levels go very, very high. So then the body is trying to figure out how do we deal with this to, to minimize the toxicity of these 
these potentially very high blood glucose levels, then that's kind of the anchoring point for me, you know, mm -hmm. in, in how I, I, I create some upper and lower bounds around this. And what, what's interesting for me is that the normal within Western societies, I think is pathological, like as a baseline, when people will say, well, you know, it, it's normal to have uh, 140, you know, postprandial, uh, it only stays there for a little while and that that's all fine. What if the normal is reflective of a population that's just uniformly sick and we're allowing people to get into blood glucose excursions that are causing really significant problems? That's a hypothesis. It's not, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not uh, Newtonian physics yeah. or something that have perfect, you know, predictive value, but it makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it and again, if we plug in some individual variability, one person may be able to consume an absolutely prodigious amount of carbohydrate and not get anywhere near 140, 150 postprandial. Uh, someone like me, you have to be relatively careful to not hit hit that level. And so then we're, we've got an eye both towards the ancestral health model in respecting that there may be some consequences to these excursions that are really significantly above what, what our, our genetics are really kind of expecting, but it also honors the fact that there's a ton of individual variation. Yeah. I just wonder where, where you draw the line, you know, like, I mean, there have yeah. been some studies that, you know, definitely look at it and, and, you know, can attest there's a higher cardiovascular risk, even an among non-diabetics if they yep. have those elevated glucose levels but most of them they look at a, a two-hour window so if you haven't really you know lowered your response within those two hours then you have that additional risk i don't know if there have been like any studies done you know to not have any response at all you know like to never really have any large excursion that goes, you know, 15, 20 milligrams or above um, your, your baseline glucose level. Right. It, you know, it'd be hard to find a population like that, that uh, mm -hmm. uh, kids or people on a long-term ketogenic diet for epilepsy would probably be one of the, one of the examples. It is interesting. I, I'm, uh, you know, like from a cardiovascular disease perspective, I'm not in the complete cholesterol skeptic camp. I do think that LDL particles can and do play a role, but I, I, I'm just so perplexed. Is the individual with peri-diabetic blood glucose levels and elevated LDL at the same risk as somebody who has really, you know, just rock solid 75 to 85 blood glucose levels and the same LDL level? Like I just can't square that in my, yeah. in my head that that's the, the same type of risk profile. So I, I, again, I think that there's just a lot of different uh, moving parts to that stuff and it, it's just damnably complex. And I, I I think, again, this is where like some kind of big picture heuristics to be able to just start unpacking this. But then we really have to get in and customize and individualize for the individual to, to kind of optimize based around goals. And, and Peter Atia likes to make the point of a kind of appetite for risk. You know, like if your LDL particle is elevated, but your blood glucose is low, your systemic inflammation is low, you, you get a coronary calcium scan and it's zero. Do you still want to go on a statin? Like, is that hedging your bets or is that exposing you to greater risk? And I, I there are people on both sides of the spectrum mm -hmm. that are emphatically sure that they're right one way or the other. And <laughs> I'm just perpetually uh, confused by it. You know, 15 years ago, I, I had cardiovascular disease 100% figured out. And I swear every day I get dumber and dumber on what what seems to be going on with this thing. But I will say I, I feel like blood glucose excursions look more and more dangerous to me than, than I wouldn't say any 
lipidology profile, but it, uh, it, it raises my hackles very, very quick. Whereas, um, a host of different lipidology profiles, I think we can, we can nest those under different risk strata and not be too worried about it, but it, it's, uh, blood glucose excursions. I, I can get kind of, kind of antsy about that re- really right. quickly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about CGMs. I mean, it's almost impossible to ignore because there have been, uh, quite a few different startups now that have emerged in the last few months and the use of continuous glucose monitoring among non-diabetics has been definitely on the rise and it can have quite a different uh, different amount of uses for, for the non-diabetics. And one concept is definitely the one of personalized nutrition. Mm-hmm. And there's an often cited study of the Weizmann Institute from 2015 that looked at the individual glycemic response of non-diabetic Israelis. And it turned out that the One's postprandial glucose response can vastly differ from one another due to the difference in genes, lifestyle, insulin sensitivity, and gut microbiota, like we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. Now, for some, eating bread may create a huge glucose spike, and for others, it may, you know, not so at all. And I think you featured, you know, like years back in your second book already, the seven day carb test. And, and now that's become even more popular now that with CGMs, it's become much more easier than using finger pricking. And basically, the idea is to compare different foods and and really look at the different glycemic response between say white and brown rice or banana and oatmeal that have like similar amounts of carbohydrates but really evoke a different glycemic response and that can really give you maybe an idea if you if you react differently than what is considered the norm under the glycemic index what are like your thoughts you know like a few years on regarding some of those experiments I, i think they're incredibly powerful when i was writing the book i was really hoping like there's been noise out of Apple for ages that they were, you were going to be able to use the Apple watch for like transdermal blood glucose monitoring. And they they keep punting on this, you know, uh, I would be really nervous being in the the business of making the the hardware around CGMs, Mm -hmm. because if Apple or when these people crack that, that nut, then it's going to be a rough day to, to sell those. But I do think that the, the data that we can obtain from that is really, really valuable. And I'll, I'll share an example. When we do our resets within our healthy rebellion community, we, we make it optional that folks can do the seven day carb test on the front end and kind of get a sense of where they are with different carbs. And from a coaching perspective, what this has done is it's offloaded the emotionality of carb response onto a fairly objective measure. It's like, right. dude, you ate white rice and you went into diabetic blood glucose levels. And so we, we, we need to either, you know, modify the type or the amount of the carbohydrate. And so it's been really valuable in that regard from a coaching perspective, because people see it and then they eat differently and they feel better. And so some good things come out of that. But an interesting side note with that, we've had some, some folks do the seven day carb test, really test pretty poorly. Like they were kind of like me. It's like, uh, there wasn't really a, a carb that was a good friend of theirs. They did everything for <laughs> from like kind of basic paleo to, to even some, some carnivore interventions. One, one uh, person I'm thinking of specifically ate carnivore for the reset, continued for six months, started reintroducing carbohydrates, retested the same carbohydrates she did before the, the intervention. And she was remarkably carb tolerant then. And, uh, she lost 
15, 20 pounds. I mean, it, it, but she gained significant muscle during that process too. Like she started lifting weights and whatnot, but it, it was interesting on a variety of levels for me. And, and, and I don't think any of this can be taken, you know, that it's, it's uniform to everybody, but metabolic flexibility can be improved in people. The irony is that I've been terrible at improving it in myself, but some of the folks we we've worked with have had really remarkable success. There's been a variety of ways that people have been able to improve their metabolic flexibility, but generally some weight loss and muscle gain and, and clinical improvements in digestion seem to be like the things that they need to do. Improving sleep seems to be a biggie. And then really interestingly, at least for some people, they are using a carnivore intervention successfully and then reintroducing food. So they're not trapped in, in that mm -hmm. scenario. And they are clearly healthier after that intervention than what they were before. And again, it's not to say that something else couldn't have worked, but when people, it, it, for, for me, I, when I eat just kind of keto, I have no food cravings. I, I'm, I'm great. I like having some asparagus and tomatoes and avocado. Like it's not a huge variety, but it's a little bit of variety. When I did carnivore for six weeks, I was neurotic. I had cravings for ice cream. And the funny <laughs> thing is that people out of the, um, people out of the uh, carnivore scene, they started sounding like raw vegans where they're like, you're just detoxing. You'll get through it. And I'm like, no, I think there's something wrong here. <laughs> like I, I've eaten for 20 years, just a little bit differently than this. And I have no food cravings. And now I'm like losing my mind. And I think it was just like, I was so constrained on that diet that it, 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 it made me kind of crazy. Now, what I did learn from it is that if I'm particularly, if I'm traveling and like, all I can get is a bunch of hamburger patties, I can do that for a couple of days and I don't have to sweat it. Like not, not scratching up some kale or something isn't the end of the world. And so I learned something from that, but it, it was, uh, it, it's just an interesting side note because there are people that say, if you eat carnivore, you will absolutely ruin your gut and you will never eat other foods again. There may be some circumstances where that's true, but I'm at least seeing some anecdote where that's not true. And so I, I right. you know, doing those, those little experiments and using something like a CGM to get some legit objective, uh, feedback, I think is really valuable because otherwise this, this is still highly anecdotal but there's at least that little bit of consistent objective background to it. It's like CGMs are improving in these people. They didn't change in these people, you know? And, and so I think you can start it, even in um, thinking about study design, we can start asking some good questions from these N equal one experiments. Yeah. I think, I think there's definitely like the personalized nutrition aspect, right? I mean, we all have the different uh, microbiome consistent in our gut as well as uh, different genetic pool and, and different lifestyle and all these factors really factor into what diet also work best for us. Now, when it comes to, you know, running some of those experiments with CGM, how much variance could one expect though to see, you know, like you may, you know, discover some, you know, glycemic response uh, that, that surprises you, but then maybe could that be the case made that three months later you run the test again, the result might be completely different. Just because of the natural variation. Yeah. In the testing. Because maybe you didn't have enough sleep. Maybe the time of the day you conducted the test, maybe you changed your diet. Maybe you went really from paleo to, to carnivore. And I mean, there are like so many things that impact you know, like your responses. Yeah. I wrote an article that we should be publishing on the, the element website soon. It, it's called testing is data, not the destination. And, uh, I see this is one of my hesitations about things like CGMs or like the ketone monitoring. People just do stupid stuff as a, a trying to like play to a particular number. Now, if you're getting really crazy blood glucose excursions, then we probably need to do some things to figure out how to improve that. But, uh, you know, like in the case of ketones, higher ketone levels are not 
inherently better. Like at some point mm-hmm. it becomes ketoacidosis and you can die from it. So, you know, if people are concerned about too high of glucose levels being problematic, too high of ketone levels can also be problematic. And in some situations for neurological conditions or like adjunctive cancer therapies and whatnot, higher ketone levels are are important, but uh, the people give too little thought to the day-to-day variation in that testing for sure. And, and so that's where a spreadsheet or something like uh, Heads Up Health or something like that, where you're putting all your data in, in this thing and you can really step back and look at it and do so. Some, some uh, subjective notes. So like when we uh, uh, roll out the uh, the seven-day carb test, we use the, the finger stick mo- uh, method for, for tracking blood glucose. Mm-hmm. And ideally we do it pre-meal, one hour, two hours. Like that, that's ideal. People can do it different ways. But amidst all that, we're also recording a bunch of subjective information. How did you sleep that day? Did you have any additional stress? Right. We try to do it at exactly the same time of day. If you have one, one cup of coffee, you don't have two and, and, and expect things not to change. So we try to normalize as, as much as possible. But that is where, to some degree, I, I see folks just like do a total Thelma and Louise off the, off the cliff of, of, you know, N equals one self-experimentation where it's like, sometimes just stepping back and like, well, how do you look? How do you feel? How are you performing? Sometimes that becomes really valuable because there can be so much day-to-day hour-to-hour variation and people get so wrapped around this number that it's like, okay, maybe we just need to step back and do less tracking and less analysis. So this is actually some of my concern around like the, the Apple watch becoming actually really mm. good at tracking blood glucose level. Yeah, and I think it also depends a bit on how the data is being presented and, you know, like, is it pushing you maybe from one extreme to another? Um, yeah. Maybe just to give an example, you know, like one of those startups that is using CGMs, the Freestyle Libre, and, and they have their own, you know, curvatures and they allow you to, to snap photographs of your meals and then basically you can compare how that you know, compared to your postprandial uh, glycemic response. Yep. And, you know, like just to have an example, like one, one time when I used one, I, I was eating a breakfast consisting of, yeah, waffles, protein waffles, but still, you know, there were, I think, like 20, 30 grams of carbs in there. Plus, you know, I had some berries, obviously more carbs and some scrambled eggs. And my glucose went up from, I think, about 81 milligrams per deciliter to about 131 milligrams per deciliter within the first 30 minutes. By one hour, it was back down to, I think, 110. And by two hours, I was back to 90. Now, this meal was scored from 0 to 10. And this meal got a score of like 1. Was it really that bad? You know, I mean, there there was definitely, it was not ideal. You know, like classic bacon and eggs would basically have a flat line for me. I I would stay at like 90 and I would get a 10, which, which is great. I get it, but you know, is is it really like such a stark difference? You know, like between the first meal and the second, and that's why I'm wondering, like, at at what point, you know, like, should you draw the line where it gets really a bit too extreme? Yeah, I I don't know. I think that some degree of variation in that. So you know, we mentioned the um, the glucose hysteresis, which is the cyclical exposure to something and kind of pushing the epigenetic uh, profile more towards, say, like a glucocentric metabolism, which could could have some problems. But the flip side of this is the hormetic response. And so an individual that never 
has a glucose excursion, they actually become poorer at dealing with it. So this is where you could make the case that maybe once a week, once every 10 days or something, I don't know that you, it's kind of like the old anabolic diet or cyclic low carb diet, which I actually find those things work terribly for people because they try to do low carb and then donuts and ice cream. And it, it, it just, it, it doesn't work well, but having a piece of fruit here and there, you know, like, like pushing that blood glucose up a little bit because that, that one exposure upregulates the the anti advanced glycation end products like the, the the enzymes that help untangle the these advanced glycation end products if your blood glucose is so low so completely stable then you actually lose some of that adaptability now if you are just a hundred percent like like uh, blood glucose stable or if you're a type 1 diabetic mm-hmm. and and you really just don't want to arm wrestle with a, a, a glucose excursion, that's fine. But this is a a case to be made for, um, you know, just every once in a while have a piece of fruit, like, you know, it, 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 as long as you don't feel like absolute shit afterwards and, you know, there's not knock on problems, but. And and I guess it goes back to to what you mentioned at the beginning, right? It depends also a bit on your lifestyle. Let's say you're really into performance. You also need to have that adaptability that your body can quickly metabolize carbohydrates, turn them into glycogen when you really need it. Now, most people, you know, won't need it on a day to day. Right. Um, But generally, like if one of our listeners would be getting, you know, like a CGM, let's say, you know, like for 14 or 30 days, where do you think they can really at the most benefit to improving their lifestyle? I mean, there's definitely like the level of like understanding your individual glycemic response. Uh, You can test different foods. You might actually figure out something about your you know, like your day to day life, depending on what you eat, you know, like what your general glucose level is, you know, every day, even without making any interventions. But uh, mm-hmm. what would you suggest them to to try out? And, and what can they take away from there to actually make, you know, a, a positive change in their life? You know, it, it, it's, I've been noodling on this. And um... because the cynic in me could also say, you know, like, okay, if I'm already on a keto diet, or on a low right. carb diet, am I gonna learn something that I already didn't know? Yeah, <laughs> Probably, probably not. Like I think anchoring things in sleep quality and, and maybe even HRV score. Although as I say this, I'm, I'm somewhat cringing because again, (laughs) people will go nuts over HRV. And like, I ended up uh, ceasing to use my HRV platform because I, I would wear it while reading and then it considered that sleep latency and then it would give me a shitty uh, a sleep score, you know? And it, and so then I would take my aura ring off while I read and then put it back on to go to sleep just so I could get like a better score. And I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> but in the earlier stages, I, I do think that anything that we do that improves our sleep has this interesting knock-on benefit to like everything else. So should you improve your electrolyte intake or or like, do you need Mm -hmm. more sodium? Well, if you're having this, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. wake up, there may be a a case to be made for having some sodium right before you go to bed and it helps you sleep better. And then, you know, your HRV score improves. Uh, Do you do well higher carb? If you sleep better during that time, then well, maybe, maybe you do. Do you do better lower carb? Well, if you sleep better, you know, so I've actually been kind of steering things towards kind of sleep quality and then by extension, the HRV deal. But the HRV, it's again, this thing where you have to read the chicken entrails a little bit. Like it, 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 uh, people will start losing their minds. Like I was getting really frustrated because I'm like, I don't know what else I would do to sleep better. You know, it's like I blue blockers and this and that. I, I, I would never really crack up into the 90s in my sleep quality. And, and so I eventually just kind of abandoned it. But it did provide some initial insight into 
oh yeah, I can do this. I can do that. Like salt shots before bed absolutely uh, improved my sleep quality. I got both more REM sleep and uh, more deep sleep. And, and I definitely woke up more, you know, just subjectively more rested and ready to do jujitsu and training and stuff like that. So I, I do think a case could be made towards really keeping an eye on sleep quality as mm -hmm. kind of an, uh, an orienting and by extension, like blood glucose levels, I think sleep quality and blood glucose levels are some interesting kind of fairly objective metrics that if you hit those, everything else you want to do usually gets, gets improved as a consequence. Like if you want to lead athletic performance, you want the best sleep quality you can possibly get. If you're training so hard, so often that your sleep quality is degrading, you're going to blow up at some point. Like you could, you can use that for a, uh, a peaking phase, but you've got to have that planned for the, you know, dialing the volume and the intensity back so that you can, you can super compensate and everything. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good piece of advice. Now, just maybe rounding up our discussion on uh, metabolic health and, and quickly alluded it to in the beginning around ketosis, how do you think that actually has an impact on, on our metabolism and why is it a good thing to be in ketosis? I really have to kind of, st the, the main case that I would make around ketosis is that I think our, again, kind of ancestral model, our intermittency of eating and then also our physical activity levels probably pushed us into at least a low grade ketogenic state sometimes. So I think that for a lot of folks, just some amount of time spent in a, a bit more of a ketogenic state is probably pretty valuable. Some people like me who just really seem to hit a brick wall on carbohydrate metabolism. Um, it, it's kind of, it's the cul-de-sac I'm in. Like I, 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 if I go out of that, I just, I feel terrible. I start getting GI issues, definitely have like cognitive function mm -hmm. issues. And so, but I, I think that, you know, I, I, I was reflecting on a, a number of things. Vaginal birth was not breastfed, uh, tons of antibiotics as a kid, like it seemed like two times a year, I would have strep throat, uh, one on tetracycline for acne at the age of 13 and stayed on it until like 21. And so I was on and, and antibiotics for like 20 or 10 plus years. Plus, you know, all these peppered in things, um, caught Giardia in Mexico, caught Giardia in, in Thailand. Uh, you know, what does that do to my ability to uh, like, I, I think I, I've had my gut microbiome sequence and it's actually not, not all that, that re remarkable one way or the other, either good or bad, but what did all that stuff do? You know, what did, uh, I, I remember when I learned that, uh, classes of antibiotics go after the, the ribosomes that are specific to bacteria. And that's the same ribosomal proteins that, um, are in our mitochondria. And I asked my biochemistry professor, I'm like, isn't this a problem for humans? Like, wouldn't this cause mitochondrial dysfunction? She was like, no, 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 it's no issue. And <laughs> stuck in my head. And I'm like, that's gotta be bullshit. You know? And then I, I, uh, I was actually talking with Tim Ferriss about some of his long term, um, Lyme issues. And I shot him a paper that was basically, you know, uh, uh the antibiotics used in long term Lyme, uh, recovery are, are mitotoxicants and that the, 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 the long haul syndrome of, of, uh, at least some Lyme disease may actually be uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. And ironically, one of the ways to kind of reset that mitochondrial dysfunction is key, a ketogenic diet and or fasting or, you, you know, a low grade aerobic activity, you know, for long duration, which also enhances mitochondrial biogenesis and all that. So I know that's kind of a circuitous route around that. I, I um, in all honesty, 
I think that ketosis as it's generally presented is more of like a hack. It's more of a, I wouldn't say it's the natural state to eat a, you know, 70% fat, 20% right. protein. It, you know, I don't, that, that doesn't really make sense. And then it's not the only way to get into ketosis, right? I mean, fasting is maybe right. even the more natural state to get into it because back yeah. in the day, yeah. in, in our ancestral culture. With some intermittent eating. Yeah, there was some yeah. intermittent eating. We didn't yeah. always have, you know, uh, available nutrition at all times like we do have today. And right. I mean, a 36 hour fast or 48 hour fast could also get you for some substantial time into ketosis. Yep. But yep. how often would you recommend uh, for one to, to be in ketosis? It really depends on the individual and their goals. You know, again, for mm -hmm. like, for me, I'm in ketosis probably 95% of the time because I rarely eat enough carbs right. to, to pop me out. And it just through self-experimentation that, that just seems to be where I feel best. I, I think beyond that, you know, if, uh, if people started doing a little bit of a, a restricted feeding window, I, I think one thing, the, the early time restricted feeding, so trying to get more of the food in early and then, uh, it's, it's not as socially easy to do. Like skipping breakfast yeah, sure. is the more easy thing to do work-wise and more socially easy thing to do. But a, a skipping dinner and or a very light dinner, I think is metabolically more favorable potentially. And then you fast, you know, overnight, clearly. If folks just do a little little tweaking of like partitioning more calories and more carbs earlier in the day, they, they can go from uh, a, a very low fasting ketone level daily to, to you know, 0.5 or above Um overnight and they're still eating, you know, 200 grams of carbs a day, but they're just sticking it in the early part of the day and then doing some training and then uh, a very small dinner. And they're getting some appreciable ketone levels for half of their day. I think that there's probably some, some cool benefit to that. And it, it, it sure strikes me as being metabolically flexible, being able to pull something like that off. Awesome. Well, just wrapping up, uh, because like Today, we are already running a bit out of time now. And now I still wanted to talk to you actually about the whole meat versus vegetarian discussion because you have co-authored recently a book called The Case for Better Meat and why well-raised meat is good for you and good for the planet, where you kind of make the contrarian case for red meat farmed in a sustainable way. But yeah, I mean, like today, just wrapping up about metabolic health, what would be a, a good starting point for our listeners to learn more about the topic if they want to learn more about it and dive deeper? I, if folks, and you know what, I, I can follow up with you and get a link yeah. to this, but I, I did a, I, I think a pretty slick talk called Metabolic Flexibility, the Rosetta Stone of the Macronutrient Wars. Mm -hmm. And I, I had kind of a four, four part series and that was part two of the series. The most recent one was Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And it really digs into mTOR mm -hmm. and protein and like is, is massive protein restriction really going to be the boon that people suggest it is. And I really don't think it, it, it is. I think that there's, um, the researchers really decrying protein intake are, are looking at this through, through a straw instead of through like a, a broader lens of evolutionary biology. But yeah, that would, I, I that, that's a, I, I'll, I'll toot my horn a little bit. That metabolic flexibility talk was pretty legit there. It covers a lot of ground and it pisses off almost <laughs> everybody in the space. Like the low carb jihadis are not happy about it. The Katavan, um, paleo people are not happy about it, but uh, I, I really like that, that one. And I think it's a good introduction to both metabolic flexibility and also it's these, these broader 
topics of why, why under some circumstances does a high carb diet seem to be the bee's knees and why in other circumstances does a, a modified Atkins seem to be like the, the only thing that works for somebody. And once we kind of understand both that big picture and also the ability to go down and individualize, then I think it sorts out a lot of stuff. Right. Yeah. It's a great talk. And we, we make sure to put it into our show notes and of course also to your books. And you also do have your own podcast, right? Yeah. It's called The Healthy Rebellion. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rob Wolf, for coming on the show. We definitely have to make uh, time for, for another session at a later time because I definitely still want to talk about red meat. I, I will bring down property values anytime you want. So you let me know and we'll do it again. Much appreciated. Well, that wraps up another edition of 20 Minute Fitness. Make sure to check out our show notes on 20minute.fitness where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Shape20Fit. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review helps other listeners to learn about our show. And of course, your feedback is always highly appreciated. If you've done this already, please consider telling a friend or family member perhaps about the show if you think they'd get something out of it. This is Martin Kessler. 20 Minute Fitness is mixed by Lila Lasso and produced by Shape in San Francisco. As always, thank you so much for your continued support and until next time.